This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the short code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to The Short Coat, a podcast of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. I'm lonely here in the SCP studio all by myself. Uh, but fortunately, I am joined by online by my lovely co-hosts. Uh, M3 Emma Barr is here. Hello. Uh, MD-PhD student Aline Sanduk is here. Hey, how's it going? M1 AJ Chowdhury has joined us. What's up, guys? And M1 Alex Belzer Hello. is here as well. Thank you. Thank you for coming. On today's show, we discuss Garrett's and Isaac's listener questions about the importance of volunteering and shadowing hours in the time of COVID. Uh, we talk about why my insistence on yelling into the social media void about staying home for Thanksgiving isn't particularly helpful. And uh, we hear from uh, the co-founder of the sponsor for today's episode, Panacea Financial, a division of Sonnebank member FDIC. Michael Jerkins is back to talk with me about how medical students should think about their debt, including deciding on the amount of loans to take and why it's important to actually make that decision. Um, well, we'll get to that. I don't want to, you know, we'll get to it. What are you guys up to? Tell me some stories. You know, you got no stories, do you? You got nothing. <laughs> You're all hiding in your rooms from COVID. We're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything That's fine. in real life. That's okay. That's how I like it. Uh, suddenly, the air conditioning has turned on in this room, and I am now freezing cold. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> oh, well. Uh, that was a rough start to our first live stream, which we quickly aborted. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it says, uh, okay. I'm going to try to go back on just because Phil, Phil, everybody, Phil, entertain. Oh, oh. I thought you were saying like Phil, the, the person's name. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I thought he was calling out our one audience member. I'm like, welcome, <laughs> Phil, to the show. <laughs> All five of us are here for you. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I really I wasn't joking. I really am going nowhere and doing nothing these days. <laughs> With everything going on, yeah. All the, and, all the oh, preclinical classes got moved to virtual, so yeah. our uh, anatomy lab practical is going to be grainy pictures, probably. Oh wow! I forgot you had to do that. Yeah, hmm. it's gonna do be. Do you gnarly. still you still get the one minute pauses to think about life and look at your classmates? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the format's like now. We get seventy minutes to do fifty questions. We can't go back to previous questions. Mm -hmm. But we have time at the end, I'm guessing, to change our answers. Okay. So it's, it's all, still all up in the air right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. all I know is the uh, now that I don't have to go to Murph at all, motivation is like through the tent, through the floor. <laughs> it's like, wake up, go to my desk. We should yeah. redecorate. You, If you're really committed to your medical education, redecorate your apartment's as though they were you know, the big the big auditorium or something, you know, maybe put a stand, a clever cardboard facade of uh, Pete Rubenstein uh, in the corner 
<laughs> our uh, beloved biochem professor. And the problem, the problem with that is that those chairs in Murph eleven ten are so comfortable. I would fall asleep like almost every day. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of it. That's part of the educational experience <laughs> is falling asleep in class and and again go having to go back and watch uh, yeah. Panopto. That's true. I had some of my best naps in one year. Well, I don't know. We'll get, you know what? We'll get back to it. We've got we've got we've got uh, two almost too good to believe it's true uh, vaccines. Um, we got we got this. We got this. It's 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 all it's all going to come together. Don't you think? Wow. That was the least (laughs) enthusiastic response to any idea that I have ever had. Cautious optimism. TBD. I remember being overly optimistic in like April being like, oh, yeah, we're going to be back to normal by June. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I know what you're saying. Yeah. I know. So, I yeah, mean, people thought the summertime was going to be the end of this. I remember that too, actually. I mean, so much of this now it, depends on um, behaviors, right? I mean, because we have, like, even if even if these vaccines pan out, which it, I mean, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, but even if these vaccines pan out, we have to depend on people to get vaccinated, um, and it's unclear, you know, whether that's actually going to uh, occur for you know more than forty percent of the population. So, uh, but you know, I'm optimistic. It's got to end at some point. I'm, I'm personally, I'm comfortable and cozy in my home. And, um, if I never see any of you in person again, um, then that's just, you know, some smells I don't have to deal with or something, you know? Right. I mean, I mean, not you personally, I don't think, I don't think you personally smell. I'm just saying that, you know, like it's less likely that I will have to smell people. I go pretty far out of my way to not smell. So this feels like a personal attack on me. I don't know if you meant it that way, but that's how I'm taking it. Well, you can always keep wearing the mask and face shields, Dave, um, beyond COVID if you're really worried about smells. (laughs) Okay. I understand. That makes a lot of sense. I think we could, I think we could do that. I think I could do that. Hey, I've got, uh, or you can just get COVID and then lose your sense of smell. Hey, that works too. That's a turning lemons into lemonade over here with Alex. (laughs) I might get really skinny too, since I'll hate food. (laughs) Um, COVID weight loss program. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a video of a guy who had COVID lost his sense of taste and he ate, he bit into an onion and then drank a whole bottle of lemon juice. Oh, yeah. I saw Ew. this guy, too. That was <laughs> that was nuts. That was terrifying. Wow. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, like, there are so many other things that he could do to test his sense of smell without going nuclear. But I would. I mean, I he would. He really wanted to be sure. Yeah. If, if I could if I could set up a, uh, a co-hosting situation where we all had lost our sense of smell. You'd better believe that I would be testing out some seriously effed up shit. Uh, Smell-o-vision. Yeah. Fall 2021. The temptation would be just way too great um, for me not to do that. Uh, Remember when you had us try Marmite on the show? Oh. Oh. Uh, Was it it Marmite? She loves Marmite. It was Marmite. People love it. Yeah. Alex, where's your mom from? He's from the Netherlands. Oh, 
Yeah. It's a British product, right, Dave, or no? Uh, British, uh, Australia, Australians eat a fair amount. Us, Australians have the Vegemite. Vegemite, Vegemite. I think they're the same, though. I don't know. There's probably a subtle difference that... I've tried to figure out the difference, and I can't do it. Okay. Uh, I've, I've asked about it, too. It's, it's does, does, your, does your mom... Uh, this is like the start of a weird joke, but does your mom consume uh, a lot of pickled herring? Because I think that's a Netherlands thing, right? It is a Dutch thing. Um, I think they like it smoked. That's like the the delicacy thing. So I don't think my mom actually has much around here, probably because it's not that good here. Because um, it's so delicious. Yeah, in, it's like in the Netherlands. Yeah, it's like you're out for a walk. You like go to the coast for a day. There's a shop within 300 feet of the beach. And you get fish and chips. And I, smoke, you know, I know you guys are being, I know you're being facetious, but that sounds delightful. I would, <laughs> I would try that. Oh no, it is really good. It is good. Okay, so just Dave is being facetious. Yes. He's like, yeah, that's the problem. It's the location. <laughs> <laughs> I like fish and chips, but you know, pickled herring is not something that I've considered a priority in my life. But I have not tried it, so you know, who knows? I hear that it just stinks, and it's. You know, but, you know, whatever I got, I got to I got to broaden my horizons. There's a lot of foods in Europe that are interesting holdovers, I think, from the 20th century. And like in particular, the world wars were like when things food were was scarce. Yes. And when food was disgusting. You, had to, you had to make do with whatever you had. Yeah. So is that like where beef tartare comes from? Because I can't see like a legitimate situation in which somebody was like, let's slice this beef really thin and eat it raw. <laughs> <laughs> Forget fire. That is <laughs> that is too modern for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we have two listener questions to consider on a related topic. Uh, so we'll start with Garrett, who says, uh, I'm a bio major with a fr- minor in French on the pre-med track, and I'm starting to think about MCAT um, and when to apply. That being said, how big of an emphasis is clinical hours on an application for med school. I know it's a huge part of the PA process, but how large a part of it, how large a part is it for the MD route? Um, what do you guys think? Where was your guys' memories of how much, uh, how many uh, of these clinical hours or extra hours um, of, of clinic time did you have to accumulate? So I'm guessing he's talking about like actual time when you're like working with patients, not shadowing, right? I mean, I suppose um, that's I mean, he does say clinical hours. So I'm going to I'm going to go with that. I mean, there's yeah, there's volunteer hours. There's, you know, other kinds of hours that you can can and should accumulate. Right. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't think there's a certain number of hours you, you're like supposed to get with quotes. Um but like I worked as a, a certified nursing assistant for like three years off, like part time slash full time sometimes. And I thought it was just a good experience um, to get working with patients, to learn how to do like tangible skills that will help your patients. Um, and like just being a CNA is super hard work. Um, and so now I will forever have respect for nursing assistants and nurses who do like really hard work every day. Um, and I think also it's helpful when you're in inter- interview situations or writing your secondary essays, which are awful. Um, you have lots of experiences to talk about. Like they're going to ask you, like, tell me about a time when you messed up or tell me about a time when you didn't agree with a supervisor. And so having those experiences like are kind of necessary in order to answer those questions. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. My uh, I was also a CNA for like a year and a half, mostly part time. Um, 
And I feel like before that, I wasn't like sure if I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't know if I wanted to be in a clinical setting um, and getting into there. Like it obviously like it gave me the clinical hours to be able to talk about clinic and whatnot, but it also allowed me to organize my thoughts and kind of like helped bring up other parts of my application. Cause I could just speak and uh, articulate so much better why I wanted to go into medicine. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think oh, go ahead. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I think having more clinical hours helps up to a certain extent if you're engaged with it. Like if all you're doing is folding up sheets in the hospital, you can get a million clinical hours doing that, but it's not something that at least, at least at first glance is meaningful for explaining why it makes you want to be a doctor. So I think, I think there's a balance between how many hours you get and also how involved you are like being a cna like alex nemower is very very um heavy on patient contact and actually doing that hard work whereas you know if you're if you're just doing the hospital volunteering and not even seeing patients that speaks less to why you want to be a doctor and more to i guess uh checking off a box on the checklist yeah i mean let's not forget what i, I think that there are three big questions that med schools have about you um, in, in this arena. So do you understand what it is you're getting into um, in, this, in, in, in becoming a doctor? Uh, do you know what you mean when you say, I'm getting into medicine so I can help people? Um, and do you have an answer to both why medicine and why not some other allied healthcare field? Um, I think those are the three big questions that um, people are gonna have when on, on, the, um, on the interview trail. Um, and the, the goal is not necessarily to um, have a ton of hours. I think the goal for MD students is to be able to articulate and understand what those experiences have done for you in answering those questions. Is that, is that, does that ring true, do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think kind of going along with that, doing shadowing of not just doctors, of like different healthcare providers or um, yeah. professionals. So like shadow an RN, shadow occupational therapy, shadow, I don't know, dietitian, shadow physical therapy, and getting like a really wide, <clears throat> excuse me, um, variety of experiences will help you be able to articulate why you want to be an MD versus a PA versus nurse practitioner. Um, and it'll help you when you're, when you're future, in the future, when you're helping your patients, you know who to refer to and you know how, you know, you work together um, in the healthcare team. Yeah. So, yeah. But, you know, the, the 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 point of all this is to enable that holistic review um, that so many schools say they want to do. Um, and, you know, they can, of course, they, you know, they could just judge based on your MCAT and your grades um, and your letters of recommendation. But this is yet another way that they can use to figure out, you know, you know, how important this really is to you and in what ways. Um, so as far as like how much goes, just to, just do enough to answer the above questions for yourself and then be able to articulate the answers to those questions um, to an admissions committee convincingly. And if you've done the first part to a large enough extent, then you will be able to accomplish the second part, I, th- I think, is is what we're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Levi mentioned in our co-host chat that um, he thinks Garrett's 
French minor is is awesome because um, that sort of thing can be sort of randomly super helpful <laughs> at times in medicine when you know you're trying to communicate with somebody and it's not working out. Um, he said in in mobile clinic one day um, one of his classmates uh, sort of was they were trying to communicate with uh, somebody and it just wasn't working. Nobody could figure out what language to speak to this person. And um, his, his classmate busted out fr- fr- French and sort of a des- move of desperation. And all of a sudden, like everybody was able to communicate. So you never know when those sorts of extra skills are going to come in handy, mm-hmm. um, which I think is interesting because I always think of like Spanish as the one you should probably learn. Um, uh, There's a big African community, actually, in Iowa City in particular, right, I noticed. Right. Like I've heard a little bit of French around around town. So it's pretty cool. Anything Although else? I would say like generally in the US, especially if you're going to go like Southwest or, or Wild West, like Spanish, as AJ would say, Spanish is probably the most high yield. <laughs> do you say do you say things about Spanish? Is that no, uh, he says things about high yield. <laughs> I think, I think oh, he's, a one, he's one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Everything must be high yield. Like there are a couple of like tips and tricks, things that look better, I think, than others. And I, the common theme of what I've heard from admissions people is it's better to do one thing for a longer period of time than like many things for a very short period of time. Yeah. yeah. So like making a long-term commitment is good because it shows that you stick with things, which is important for a job that takes eight years to train for. Yeah. Um, if you don't include college and then, um, but even if they're short experiences, it should be meaningful in some way, or you should be able to like extract one or two interesting observations and then build a story off that, yeah. which is kind of what I did. And be able to talk about them, um, not just as like this, you know, passing thing that you did, but you have to be able to really articulate, really be in depth about it. I just want to take a minute mm-hmm. to uh, to wave to uh, Sarah and Sierra, who have apparently joined us on the Facebook. Hello. <laughs> oh, are we live? Did we, did we do it? I fixed it. I fixed Yay. it. So we came in sort of halfway nice. through the thing, but, you know, Pretty first time. Wave. Oh, my yeah, wave to the wave to, wave to them. Acknowledge them. Isaac has a related question. Um, and he says, I became interested in applying to medical school late in college after some personal experiences with healthcare. Um, as a result, I've taken up some time to finish up coursework over the summer and fall, and I'm currently studying for the MCAT, similar position as Garrett. Um, however, beyond shadowing last year, I've not been able to get any experience in the hospital. Thanks, COVID. After looking around at different online forums, I've seen mixed feelings on the importance of clinical experience beyond shadowing. I was curious on how clinical experience is usually weighted in, is usually weighted in medical school admissions and how likely that is to change due to COVID. Uh, given that volunteering is not a viable option, would it be worthwhile to apply for entry-level healthcare jobs? I think we've talked about how it's usually weighted uh, today in uh, in um, it's med school admissions. So uh, the question is, how is it likely to change um, due to COVID? Um, yeah, I mean, that's tougher. Um, I think there's going to be an acknowledgement uh, on the part of the medical education establishment on how much harder it is to get clinical experience now than it you know, might have been in the past where it was very casual. Like, yeah, just come once a week at this time. Now there's probably a lot more training people have to go through, um, more credentialing, more certification, just because there's it's such a high risk environment now. 
it, yeah, nobody, I think, is sort of welcoming people into their clinics and their hospitals to do. Yeah. Not even, I mean, uh, they're not even letting like some like clinical medical students into clinic. Yeah. And sometimes like there's heavy restrictions on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just an ethical thing, too. It's a legal liability. They don't want to get sued. Yeah. And like we're not even covered, I think, by liability insurance. So it's a pretty big risk to have us there. And the other thing to remember about um, about this is, you know, if you're trying to figure out why it's so hard, I don't I probably mo everybody understands why it's so hard right now to get this sort of experience. But the other thing is that, um, you know, even for med students, um, having somebody in the clinic with you uh, when you're a physician um, means extra work for you. And, you know, it's a testament to the dedication of these people that they're willing to, to do this at all. They don't you know, they could work somewhere else and not have to do this. Um, but right now. Uh, one big problem is that we are so busy. We, they are so busy in the, in the hospitals with COVID that, um, literally they may not have time, um, to shepherd a medical student or a volunteer or whatever. Um, but I, I also think that, um, every pre-med in this country and in the world is experiencing the same exact problem. They're in the same boat. Um, and so are admissions committees. So I think what I would say is, you know, don't stress out about getting enough uh, in-person clinical experience. Um, that's not as important right now. Um, I think. I think also yeah. um, this is like I was going to say, try to be creative with like different experiences, which I know it's hard to like just be creative. But if you think like for example, mobile clinic at the University of Iowa has been doing like telehealth appointments and there's still volunteers needed for that. And so that's still a good experience. You could also probably still volunteer for like a suicide hotline. Mm -hmm. And that's good experience talking to people who are under stress too, or like hospice is probably still going on. Like I'm, I'm guessing they still need volunteers for that. Um, obviously there's probably going to be more restrictions, but you don't have to get experience in a hospital per se. You just need experience working with people. Um, and so I think there's still opportunities. You just have to might like think outside the box a little bit. And I think uh, my guess is, uh, you know, admissions committee, if committees, if they're really looking for, you know, volunteer work, for instance, um, they're going to be, you know, accepting even more of other things than they usually would, you know, so tutoring school age kids who are learning online, um, helping elderly people who can't leave their homes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, all of these things are, you know, were, were uh, important and useful uh, pre-COVID. And, you know, now they're just even more so now um, that you can't, uh, you know, spend all your time in the hospital. You could also call the public health department and see if they have any volunteer needs. You know, maybe those folks in the tents giving the tests need somebody to, um, you know, enter data or, you know, something, um, something like that. So, um so, yeah, that, those are those are options that are available. You know, there is something um, I know some med students were doing right at the outset of the outbreak in March or April. And I don't know if they're still doing it now, but when doctors were um, like doctors and other medical staff were getting really overloaded at the hospital, a lot of med students looking for something to do started signing up for errands that they could run for doctors who just did not have time for their personal personal life, you know, like walking their pets or getting groceries. And like that may not be a medically 
relevant, you know, type of uh, volunteer work or community service work, but it was, uh, it, it did provide a needed service and needed relief for people in the healthcare field. So I wanted to echo um, what Emma said. She took the words right out of my mouth, just getting creative and getting resourceful. Um, Cause I think that's, that's what seems to stand out the most in a lot of med school applications is how, how did you respond to a non-ideal situation and make it work for you? Mm-hmm. Um, because overcoming adversity, I think, and not just surviving adversity, but thriving in the face of adversity is really the, the key to happiness in med school. It's never going to be fun or easy. And if it is, it's not going to last long. But if you can find a way to get through it and even maybe enjoy it, if you can, those are the people I think that like really have the best experience. So that's a good point. Really just repeating all the great things that you said, Emma and (laughs) Dave said, but you know, no, that actually makes me think um, if you are doing errands or babysitting for physicians, when the times do become more safe and you know, you're looking for shadowing opportunities, you already have a connection and like, you can ask them, can I shadow you? Or when it becomes safe, can I do some clinical work with you? So that might be a good um, way to open a door too. Um, Isaac also asked about uh, jobs, entry level jobs. Um, I, you know, like I'm, I, I have, I'm always, uh, hmm, yeah, I'm articulate. I always have um, no problem saying that um, a gap year is not a bad idea. It's a good idea, actually. I think for for some people, and um, and yeah, there are things that you could do to uh it, during a gap year that would that would help and make you some money you could be a scribe you could um train to be a contract contact tracer right now um you could uh become an emt maybe become a medical assistant um those last two can take a while to achieve um but there is you know no need for speed in getting into med school um it's, it's well, i was gonna add i was gonna add to that list lab technicians oh yeah yeah you know, now that we find we don't even have enough tests, but we certainly have a lot more than we used to. And having and of course, there's a little bit of expertise there that needs to be gained. But if you've taken even a first or second year level science and you know your way around even just a college lab, you can probably be trained on how to conduct those tests. Yeah. And there's still, you know, despite the lockdown um, that we're experiencing right now, there's still a lot of science going on. Sierra has a question. I was curious on your opinions of if you think this pandemic will bring changes to our healthcare system. Uh, if so, what changes? I think the biggest one is going to be telehealth. Um, I think that we've been on the like the edge of falling off of a cliff into telehealth um, for a while. Like the technology's been there. That was um, a great people, metaphor. <laughs> um, but like the technology's been there, we've sort of like wanted to do it. We've seen some science come out that says that if we have telehealth, then we have better access to care, especially for people in rural populations. And I think that this is kind of like forcing us to, to I don't know, face the music or whatever. But I, I don't know. I think it's coming. I think that'll be the, the most prominent thing. Yeah, I totally agree. Telehealth has become such a huge part of COVID here, or COVID response here at our hospital. Um, just because we want to keep people, um, we want to keep people healthy. We we don't want them to um, necessarily to come to the hospital um, because the more people in the hospital, the more likely it is to spread the disease. And so, you know, telehealth is, has become a huge part not only of protecting everybody from the virus, but also uh, screening people and and um, 
understanding where they are so that when the time if and when the time comes where they do need to come to the hospital um we can do that in a relatively risk-free way so it's really interesting and yeah you're right i mean we've been we've been like fiddling about with telehealth for for ages ages we've been fiddling about with this and all of a sudden it's like oh shit um yeah we gotta we gotta get on that also coincidentally all of the current first year medical students are only trained in telehealth (laughs) (laughs) yeah so this is gonna be a big thing once they get into uh they're gonna be like why do we have to see people can't we just see their their faces on screens that'd be see a patient in real life gross (laughs) we'll be breathing in each other's faces like barbarians (laughs) i'm just kidding it's gonna seem so old-fashioned yeah. It's funny because the whole third year class has never seen like sore throats or coughs or pneumonia. Like, I don't know how to treat a URI or like I do, but I've never seen one in clinic because those patients always go to COVID clinics. So hopefully we'll be able to learn that soon. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I guess it's worth considering how it could change um, healthcare for the worse. Uh, right. Because yeah. I mean, there is less experience that you guys are are getting. Yeah. I don't know. It's, you know, eventually it's all going to even out, right? Like Yeah. Well. There there are definitely <laughs> benefits and disadvantages. You know, one disadvantage actually I was thinking about as we were talking. So something I noticed people um, in the science realm in the graduate college were really struggling at the beginning of the pandemic with like the loss of like when we were all kind of sent home and research was just canceled. Um, a lot of people were struggling with like the lack of those coincidental run-ins, you know, in hallways mm-hmm. and just like unplanned encounters with other people and having these kind of spontaneous opportunities to talk about science or to bring up an issue or whatever. Um, I like, I've personally, I've really liked having more control over who I'm exposed to and having it be completely my choice. Um, but I can see the value of not uh, like of those interactions and particularly in the clinic, you know, something they trained us to do as students is like, is there anything else you'd like to talk to me about today? And I think having that face-to-face interaction really lowers the activation energy for a patient to be like, you know what, actually, while I'm here, I did think of this and this feels like a really safe place to talk about that. Um, But, you know, suppose you're talking to a domestic violence victim, their home is not safe to be quarantining in. They can't talk about that because maybe their abusers in the next room. So there's there's benefits but also some significant disadvantages to the way we're doing medicine right now so hopefully it won't be like a complete shift but like a hybrid eventually you know speaking of um changes that are for the better uh though one of the things i'm sorry I, for bumming you out how, how <laughs> sorry for bumming everyone out with Let, please, reality let's, let's bring this back to something more positive um the feedback sandwich right it's a little positive <laughs> negative positive um, the, uh, you know, in a meeting the other day, I think I mentioned this on another show recently in a meeting the other day, we were talking about like how, how things have changed, um, for the better, uh, in education because of the use of, uh, video conferencing for, for classes. Um, and one of the things I brought up were all the side conversations that are going on during these lectures where people are asking each other questions about um, the material that they're seeing and they're able to answer. So instead of whispering to each other in an auditorium, which, you know, doesn't really work out all that well, they're whispering to each other in the chat and sort of having these conversations and these discussions, which turn out to be pretty valuable, apparently. So um, and that was weirdly 
that was sort of universally um, among the faculty that was sort of universally uh, seen as a positive, you know, because and, 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 you know, sometimes faculty are, you know, reluctant to embrace new stuff. They've had to do it now. And and so um, they were really interested in in how this had, had made for a better interaction. So maybe this will be a new feature of of medical education, you know, instead of the uh, instead of the watching it on Panopto later, um, a live lecture with chat might be something that is done forever. Here at That's interesting. Are they doing the chat like to everybody? Because I have. Yeah. I haven't done a ton of like I've, we had we were out of the clinics for four months doing lectures, but there wasn't a ton going on in the chat. Yeah. I guess for my lectures. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I think that we were, we were talking the context of preclinical, so I don't know okay. if I don't know if it's different. I will say at the beginning of our semester, um, they actually sent out an announcement after the first two weeks that was like, "It's come to our attention." <laughs> I know exactly what. There's a bunch of extraneous commentary in the Zoom chat. Would you please save it for outside of class time? Yeah. And it was about at that point in class where I decided I was just going to watch everything on Panopto because <laughs> I didn't think, I don't know. I, I, I have so much trouble staying awake during a Zoom call. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it shakes out. Um, that's it's really like watching TV, but way less fun. <laughs> I mean, unless you don't get, you don't you, get to change the channel, you don't get yeah, exactly. rewind. <laughs> don't get yeah, there's no faster. commercials to give you a chance to snack, and yeah, something actually. I I noticed pretty early on. I don't think everyone knew this, but um, it depends on the host too. I think, but you can save the content of the chat. Yes. Like you have that option as the host, and that includes like private conversations. Yes, it and like does. luckily, I, I I never said anything scandalous. But when when I started doing that kind of because for some reason you can't like select all and then copy and paste the text into a separate text file. So you have to do the save the chat thing. But and you get everything. Yeah. So save save a life. Pass it on. <laughs> what you say in the chat is not totally private. I didn't realize this until just recently and, and actually within the past week. And again, I don't think I've said I have not done a lot of private chatting. <laughs> mercifully You're like oh my god who do i have to worry about oh yeah because i would who did be, I offend because i would literally be crapping my pants right now if that were if that were true like um because that's the sort of thing i worry about um even when i haven't yeah, well, even when i haven't done it sometimes i worry about it so i've yeah. taken screenshots of like people's slides do they know that i'm doing that too i don't think so Okay. I mean, Dep depends on how you're doing it, but I think like I have a MacBook and uh, I'm really going to reveal some things about myself, but I also screenshot, you know, slides as yeah. a courtesy because I'm polite. I'll minimize the speaker window so you can't see their face. Yeah. Um, and obviously we would never distribute them. It's just like for yeah. your learning, but exactly. Yeah. But the software has a way like zoom will record a call, but then it'll ask for everyone's consent. Mm -hmm. which actually is not required in the state of Iowa. Kind of a fun fact, Iowa's a one-party consent state, which means the only consent you need to record an interaction you're a part of is yours, and that's the only criterion. So, Interesting. I have never used that to my advantage, but I have thought about it. <laughs> I record almost all of my meetings, actually. <laughs> and it, I am 100% within my legal right. And part of it is just for note keeping because my hand is a lot slower than my brain. But, um, you know, on a paranoid level, if anyone ever says or does anything untoward towards you, that's the only proof you'd have. 
-hmm. especially if it's a professor, it comes down to your word versus theirs. And the professor has a lot more clout than a student. So (laughs) it's not a bad safety precaution to take, (laughs) like putting your key between your fingers when you walk to your car or having a taser. So, okay. You have like a, like a, like a external stored hard drive for that. (laughs) Cause I can imagine Uh, that the, the, the amount of data builds up pretty quickly. It's a lot less than you'd expect. So, um, on a MacBook, you can, <laughs> I, I'm sure Aline. everybody wants to know exactly what I do. Oh, you um, but on a, well, you know, I haven't encountered that problem, but also I keep my laptop pretty clean of any extra, cause I have a MacBook Air, so it fills up pretty quick. Um, but so far I haven't had a problem. I don't think it's more than like, I don't know, 10, 20 megabytes. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Thanks for the heads up. I'm going to make a mental note though to get a, <laughs> to get a drive, <laughs> a, a Richard Nixon themed drive yes. to store all of my programming conversations. Yes, you need an external hard drive, Aline. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, um, well, let's uh, let's continue. Oh, Levi uh, says guest lectures are are much more reachable and available now too, which is absolutely true. Um, that's kind of a cool little side effect of this. You know, before, it, the funny thing is, like, I think in Iowa we have had Zoom available to us we just didn't know it and then all of a sudden we were like zoom 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 everybody zoom woo zoom um we could have been doing this all along it's not just zoom there's there was skype business for a while Mm -hmm. and i think that was the major one for the university of iowa before the pandemic and then if you bought stock in zoom before this all happened you are just rolling in the money now i I can only imagine how much money you are making off that stock because i had hardly heard of it before and then all of a sudden zoom everywhere yeah so Dr. Michael Jerkins, you're back. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm here. Dr. Jerkins is uh, (laughs) president and co-founder of Panacea Financial, financial services company dedicated to the needs of physicians and medical learners. Thanks for coming back. Last time we discussed a really common issue in medical education, student loan debt. But the other side of that rather massive coin is the financial habits that med students should cultivate in order to minimize that debt and make sound choices as they proceed through their education. So how do medical students decide uh, how much in loans to take out per year? Well, generally it's in consultation with the financial aid office who spits out a cost of attendance number for them. And then you uh, budget for how much your life expenses are going to be on top of that. And then you borrow that amount of money based on the financial aid package that your medical school offers. And this can be, like I mentioned before, a fairly rapid process, easy process, sometimes almost too easy because just with a few clicks, you can add a a zero or two here or there and your bank account might look like it's a little better off in the short term, but the long term actually might not be better off. You know what I always think about is the allotment for computers that you can get. And I can't remember the exact number, but let's say it's $2,400. You may not need a $2,400 computer to get you through medical school. It might not be. I mean, so little things like this can be important. I mean, you can get it. Maybe you don't necessarily need it. Absolutely. And you know, for me, like I said, you know, you see a couple hundred bucks you can add. You're like, oh, that's great. I could go out this weekend. But I mean, I think there's that- really 
I think yeah. that sort of thing happens. happens it does happen. I mean, it happened to me, so I get it. I think the, the future costs are pretty huge, and it's hard to really understand that truly as a medical student. I know I didn't, but when I think about paying back your loans, this is kind of a boring topic, but I think it's important. There's really three components. One is principal, which is how much you borrowed. Two is interest, which is a percent of that principal that builds up kind of in a separate bucket. And then there's something called capitalization, which is probably the kicker of this all, which is when your interest gets added back to your loan principal. So let's say you took a loan for $1,000, you're paying interest on that. And let's say you have $100 of interest and that capitalizes. Now, all of a sudden, your principal is $1,100. And so that can really snowball over the years. And most of us in residency didn't have enough money to fully really pay on some of these loans. In fact, it's not uncommon for a lot of residents to be accruing $1,000 a month perhaps on interest during residency and fellowship. So you can imagine when you finally get your paycheck as an attending, you really have a a sticker shock as to what your student loan balance is now. I know I did. Why does knowing how much you should take out matter in this case? It really matters because you really need to focus on borrowing how much you need as opposed to how much you can, because it really can give you a better leg up on repaying uh, this debt and, and getting out from under the debt as quickly as possible as an attending. And some of the financial behaviors I think that I probably need to do a better job with is things like not putting uh, money on a credit card if I absolutely do not have to, only using it a, as an emergency and paying off as quickly as possible things like already mentioned, not taking out more loans than you need, trying to create a little bit of a budget, which is how much money you expect to spend each month and really try to stick to that as much as possible. Easier said than done, I know. And one of the things we're excited about at Panacea Financial is we really are going to focus on financial wellness for our medical students, residents, and fellows. Again, we don't want to encourage people to borrow responsibly, but we know that the realities are sometimes these costs happen and you don't have a good place to go accept credit cards. So we really want to offer alternative with that, with our, what we're calling a PRN loan product. And not only that, but having your own access to a private banker who can answer some of your questions, I think is really attractive, even for the attention that, that medical students probably aren't used to getting from banks, but, but we're willing to do. All right. Well then what should a medical student know about choosing a bank? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a bank at first you probably don't think a lot about because you don't interact with very much. It's all kind of looking at your phone, but it really does matter, especially if you're going to relocate for residency or you might relocate for residency. Having a bank that is going to be able to offer services where you go is nice because you don't have to unplug and plug into another bank as soon as you move. Then you might move for fellowship and have to find another bank. But with Panacea Financial, we are a bank that moves with you. So we're a branchless bank that across the nation and fully digital. And you have your own personal banker, we're calling primary care banker, that, that you've known as a med student. They can still have that relationship as a resident or fellow and offer products across the country. And another thing at our bank that we think sets us apart is that uh, we work the same hours as you do. So you can work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, night shifts, and so do we. We have people literally sitting at the bank waiting to answer your phone call at 2 a.m. if you need some help. So that's one thing to look for in a bank is how good is our customer service. And we think certainly ours is really great and catered to physicians and medical students. All right. Well, uh, next time we get together, I'd like to talk about the transition to residency and the kinds of issues that a student might not think about. Maybe you didn't think about until just before that 
moment. That sounds like a fantastic idea. I'm excited about it. Well, in the meantime, Short Coats, aside from supporting the show by visiting Panacea Financial at PanaceaFinancial.com, you should go there and find out how they can help you on your med ed journey. Just go take a look. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. weeks ago, I ranted about how Americans are being wussies about staying home and masking up. And, uh, you know, I, I, I knew that that sort of message doesn't really help. Um, but I couldn't stop myself. I, I was overcome. I was overcome by scorn. Um, but this week, I read an op-ed on MedPage Today from uh, UCF medicine professor Vinay Prasad, uh, which said that I, along with many of the healthcare professionals I know, are using ineffective messaging about the need to stay apart. Uh, this holiday season. So the message should be, according to Dr. Prasad, um, about how to meet as safely as possible. Not not to meet, but how to do it as safely as possible, because 38 percent of Americans, he says, have admitted they're going to meet anyway. Um, And it's likely to be even higher than that because people don't want to say that they're not following the rules or not following the best practices or whatever, whatever is socially acceptable. They want to say that instead. So they're going to take risks because we as you know, humans need social interaction, social connection as much as they need food and water and sleep and sex. Um, Dr. Prasad likened this, uh, our current approach to abstinence only uh, approaches to um, STD prevention or drug addiction. Um, you know, just say no to Thanksgiving, basically, is, is the approach that we're taking right now. You know, as I was reading that article, that's 100 percent what came to mind as I was working my through. And then when it got to that part, I was like, yeah, exactly. Like we we have so much data to show that abstinence only sex ed does not is not very effective. But harm reduction approaches do work. It's so hard. There's, though. It's so there's hard. so much. Yeah. It's- a lot of feelings tied up with this. It's hard, I think, for people to cast aside their personal feelings to focus on the goal. Like what's the goal here? It's to keep people safe. So if they're going to be engaging in these behaviors, then how can we make sure that they're as safe as they can be? Mm-hmm. But just saying no and shaming people, we, we've done the legwork. It's not, it's not working. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who are like doing the shaming, myself included, um, are in the medical field or like, like they're still going to work every day. They're still working with people. They're seeing patients. And that's part of their reasoning for why they want people to be so careful is that they're seeing the effects. But they're also able to continue their job. They're able to be around people and interacting every day. Whereas people who have like office jobs and jobs on the computer are sitting at home all day, not talking to people, not interacting face and face to face. And so I feel like they may be feeling the effects of like social isolation more so than the people who are doing a bit more of the shaming, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think we need more, betrays, more empathy. Yeah. I was about to say it betrays a, and not intentional, but effectively a lack of empathy. Well, you do. I mean, you want to be firm 
about, you know, the impulse for me is to be firm about what I think is the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's the science is clear. The right thing to Dave, do. you sound you sound a little bit like a Republican. The way that I live is the mostest correct way and everyone <laughs> should live exactly. The way. I'm just kidding. But, you know, like. Yeah, fuck off, Aline. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. But, I mean, you're not wrong, but, you know, if you replaced staying at home during covid with like unprotected sex or or opium addiction or like there's so many things you can substitute right into that statement and and now it's a whole different tune so i don't disagree with you but there has to be a a different way to frame it to have more success yeah yeah and it's and i, I think we agree on that i don't think we're disagreeing no, i just totally, couldn't pass up the opportunity to make fun of you I, and i appreciate that i only make fun of people i love and so i will I will assume that that is the same for you. And oh, yeah. Yeah. To your face. Anyway, if I didn't like you, I'd wait for you to leave the room. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't even think about people I don't like. So. Okay. (laughs) Um. Yeah. Uh, so it's, I guess I'm going to now, I don't know, like the, I think the pro one of the problems is though that I, you know, I can, it's easy for, it's easy to recommend stay at home because it's very, uh, it's very binary. It's very on or off. You know, you stay at home or you don't stay at home. And if you stay at home, it's, you know, you're going to, everything will be fine. Um, whereas the other way is a sort of more nuanced approach, right? Um, which is difficult, more difficult to communicate and get right. I still like the messaging at the onset of the pandemic. Unless you want to be intubated by a psychiatrist, stay at home. <laughs> Yeah, they're calling up every reservist, every medical reservist we can we can spare. I mean, that that has been the number one concern, I think, in all this. It's not that we can't manage the disease. It's not that we can't help people recover. It's that we can only help a certain number of people at a time. And it creates kind of a run on the bank situation if everyone is getting very sick at the same time. And then we start have our workforce starts getting sick. And now it just compounds the problem because the very people that would, you know, stem the rise of this of this epidemic and these case numbers are themselves succumbing to it. So I guess one of the things I'm struggling with a little bit is that I have been, you know, I've not been happy with the governors in the US who have not um, who, who have taken an approach of like, everything should be open. Everything is wonderful. Um, it's all good. Um, and you know, I know that's not exactly what they're saying, but you know, like, but, but, but I've been so vehemently against that. And now to be, and now sort of considering, you know, oh, how should I be more empathetic, um, about the message? You know, were, were they in fact being, were they in fact, right? Ooh, I don't you know. Like, I don't know. What do you mean by were they right? Oh, like, were they right to be? To be like, um, to basically adopt the approach of, well, we can't mandate people not go to Thanksgiving. You know, we can't mandate people not get together. We can't mandate masks. To me, it, it comes back to like this almost fundamental po- political issue to where there's one side that says that it's your personal responsibility to not get infected by the virus. And then the other side says that we should create conditions to where people will not get infected by the virus and have some effects on their behavior. Yeah. And it seems like, I don't know, I have, a, I have a tough time subscribing to the fact that everybody should be responsible for um, staying in their house, 
Um, and while I think that that's a good guideline, I mean, there's people that have to go to work. There's people that can't afford to just stay in their house forever. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. And, and you know, I want to keep I want people to keep in mind, you know, like when I say, you know, when I sort of express myself in these sort of hardline terms, like everybody stay home or everybody don't. I do that knowing, of course, that there are some people who who can't do that. And I guess that should always be a part of what I say, because otherwise, how are people going to know that I understand that, that I actually understand that? But I do forget to say it. But I do always think of that. I think for me, I it's think, um, no, I think ahead, for me, it's been interesting to see. So I'm from Washington State and they, the governor there has taken a very different approach to shutdowns and things like that than our governor here in Iowa. And so it's been interesting to see how people respond in each state. And I think for the most part, the people I know in Washington are like, okay with the shutdowns, they don't like them, but, you know, see them as necessary. Um, But then I also know people there who are like, well, what about the hypocrisy of like, you know, big celebrations when Biden won? Um, Like, you know, people out in the streets in various cities throughout the U.S., they're usually wearing masks, but like, isn't that a public health risk, too? And so they're like, well, if they're not condemning that, why are they condemning me having three people over for Thanksgiving? Um, and so I think that's another like another layer to the issue of um, politics, I guess, in this problem. <coughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, there was a what, what a time to catch COVID. <laughs> my God. <laughs> there was a uh, a thing on NPR I was listening to actually on my way into work today about the different approaches of Vermont and North Dakota. North Dakota right now is is getting slammed. Um Vermont, not so much. And the contrast between those two states, they, they chose those two states because they have similar population sizes. They're similarly rural. And um, the difference between the results of the North Dakota approach, which was business as usual, and the Vermont approach, which was, you know, mask mandates and all that kind of stuff that, you know, in shutdowns, um, is that, in fact, Vermont is doing extra is doing comparatively well and North Dakota is not. Um, so, mm-hmm. so I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. Please do Aline. <laughs> so, so I'm realizing, <laughs> yeah, Alex is like, yes. <laughs> um, I think that there's a lot of value in people questioning authority and not just automatically doing what they're told. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence to show that, hey, this is not a hoax. People are actually suffering. Um, But our response has been so, as a country and even on the state level, has been so chaotic and disorganized and inconsistently applied that, you know, even people who want to do the right thing don't even know what the right thing is to do from one time to another. And I think that speaks to the power of like good public health protocols, you know, mm. having clear messaging, clear guidelines. Um, I wouldn't even go as far as to say enforcement. I think if you communicate what you need people to do in a way that makes sense and has a real justification, they're more likely to be reasoned into it than to get defensive. Um so I don't know. It's not it's not just people being stubborn. It, it, there's been a real failure of leadership at many, many levels. And we there's a reason that we elect someone to be our governor. And, and there's a reason it's not me, because that's a profession. That's a job. And it's complicated. And a thousand three million people, let's say three million people in the state of Iowa cannot coordinate each other as effectively as a 
stable and well-organized and coherent government body could. So there's a failure that happened at many levels that we as lay people cannot possibly overcome and compensate for on our own. Yeah, and sort of on that note, I uh, I was talking with one of my roommates this morning. Um, we were thinking about how the the back to your point on messaging, how the messaging has been chaotic, um, and the messaging has been chaotic from like a political perspective and from even like a distributed perspective. But it hasn't been chaotic on a scientific level. We've been saying the messages that that we have the best information for at the time. Like I remember in March, um, people were saying like, "Don't wear masks. There, it doesn't do anything. Um, just socially distance. That's the best thing you can do." And so. That then for like a month after that, I wasn't wearing a mask. And then we started transitioning over to masks and people were like, but you said it didn't work before. What are we supposed to believe? Um, I know. The funny thing is like, why didn't they, why didn't they just adopt the safest possible thing from the beginning? Would we have been in a better position now? Like the, clearly the, the, the safer, potentially incorrect thing at that time was to wear masks. I think there's a caveat to that because we were running out of PPE. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah actually, but even cloth masks. Were yeah. uh, Levi, Levi says that uh, you would be infinitely more qualified than Aline than what we have now. So <laughs> let me get my CV ready. <laughs> By the way, Aline, Virginia's governor is a doctor and we have in Virginia. I'm from Virginia. We have one of the lower rates of covid nationally. So you definitely are qualified for it. <laughs> all right, we got my got my plan G. I think we if know all this other stuff I do doesn't work out. I think we know. So what I, I'm doing. actually, yeah. Um, no politics, no thank you. But <laughs> it's nice to dream. So actually, AJ, I'm from uh, right outside of DC to, or at least that's where I lived before I moved to Iowa. And I've been following that state very obviously because I have a lot of family and friends there, and their response has been phenomenal actually, um, with like high adherence and. I've kind of wondered, like most of Virginia is pretty rural. And so I'd be curious to see, is it Northern Virginia, which is infinitely more diverse and much more international in character um, as a po or, or is it kind of a consistent response throughout the state? I'd, I'd really curious. This is going to be an interesting thing. I think as time goes on is as we start to look back and analyze who did it well and who didn't, you know, what were the keys to success? And and what were what was it like on less of a macro level? So like you say, like the whole state, yes, as a whole, state's doing well. But what about you know you know the the smaller part, or the, the less populous parts of the state, things like that. So, you know, if I if I can continue to play devil's advocate, um, I I'm not a I'm not a fan of the Trump administration. There are many many things that I disagree with. But on a strategic level, <laughs> if his goal if his goal was to create like to create a smaller federal government and decrease our faith in the federal government and make states more self-sufficient mission accomplished mission accomplished <laughs> i mean the whole pandemic this whole year i think has led to an in either a renaissance or just a total failure of uh government at state levels and like historically i think the people who run for president like the the feeder system goes from you know mayor to sometimes 
prosecutors, state attorneys, but governors historically are the people that kind of get fed into running for president. And I think for the last like five, maybe four or five administrations, it hasn't been. And some people are saying that this has led to like a renaissance of state leadership and really brought back into the limelight, you know, governors doing their job well, state state politicians that we forget have such an impact on our daily lives. We've gotten so distracted with the presidency and federal government, but the people who directly impact our lives are state leaders, state po- and local politicians. Like the mayor of Iowa City has a pretty big say in how we live our lives. So well, look, I think we have to I, I think we have to close this out. So uh, I would like to say that that's our show. Uh, thank you guys for uh, joining me uh, on the show today on our first live stream. Sort of a success. Had a few people watch. It was it was interesting. If you want to uh, if you want to have the opportunity, listeners, to uh, to watch our live streams, uh, you can do that by joining the Short Coat uh, Podcast Student Lounge on Facebook. And that's where we will be live streaming. Um, so anyway, thank you. And what if I, and, 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 and thank you short coats for making us a part of your week. I got to really, I got to rework my outro to, uh, to add that in. Uh, thank you short coats for making us a part of your week. If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to us on the many places where podcasts are available. Cause we're all over that. I remind you that, uh, your questions are vital to the show it means it can be what you want it to be about. Be like Isaac and, um, and Garrett and send your questions and comments to the short coats at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. Uh, you can record a message on your phone and send it to us by email. Uh, we'll talk about it on the show. While your podcast app is open, we hope you'll be the kind of listener we're always grateful for. Give us some stars and a review to let us know if we're doing this right uh, by you. Um, Mebs Green, a.k.a. Morgan, uh, did that recently. And she said, what makes us special is that we're never afraid to share opposing, differing viewpoints. Thank you, Mebs Green, for noticing. Glad you agree. Um, the show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. Wave goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.